thank you that you are present in every place. Uh, we thank you for the way that you've chosen to make us. We thank you for the gift of life. And then above all, today we thank you that you've not left us to guess and to stumble and just to follow what our culture tells us. But you've brought us light and truth in Jesus. Help us, Father, to hear what you've got to say. Help me to speak truthfully and usefully in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a quick review from last week. We suggested that according to the scriptures, which is what Jesus says is the way to hear God, you want to hear what God the Father says, Jesus says, go back to the Old Testament. So what, what does the Bible, what does Christ teach about sex? Firstly that God made it. Remember we said it was his invention. Like an architect dreams up the opera house, God dreams up the issue of sex. It's his idea from beginning to end. Because he made it, therefore the Bible says it is good. It's not partly good, it's essentially and completely a good gift from God. And in fact, it's more than that, it is very good. In the middle of the Bible, there is the book of Song of Solomon, which is a great celebration of erotic love, which we read a bit of last week. And we finished up last week with the fact that when it comes to how you're going to live sexually, how you're going to put this business into practice, what you will or won't do as a sexual creature, it'll depend on who you trust. So much, in fact, just about everything that you do, it comes down to the question of trust. Whose opinion, whose voice, whose ideas will you trust and why will you trust them? You may choose to trust your own culture, that's what you will, that's the default position. You'll end up believing pretty much what the culture has taught you, but with one or two minor variations perhaps. Or you can choose to do the dangerous and radical thing and actually trust Jesus. Trust God, who is the expert on sexuality. One of the fun things of living at the particular year that we do now, 2003, is that after the great sexual revolution of the 60s, that was quite clearly built on all sorts of dodgy research, it's worth having a look at a book called Pure Sex. If you've not read that book, it's got all sorts of interesting stuff on why we had the revolution in the 60s. A number of large, allegedly scientific studies on sexuality which are now well known by those in the field to be rubbish and built on deliberately faulty uh, bases. But it is a question now we're seeing where there have been long studies of the results of the sexual revolution. The fruit of the great revolution, the great liberation we had and Increasingly, they are showing that the fruit has not been what people with all the best people in the world intended. One of the most interesting people uh, is, is to look at the works of Bettina Arndt. Um, she and her husband set up a magazine called Forum back in the midst of the revolution. She was the great sexologist. She would often be on the radio and television and she would just say shocking things that would have most adults and most even young people go, hmm, hmm, that's a bit, hmm. She was right out there. Now she is uh, on record as having been changed, she's now vilified as this dreadful conservative who's reacted against her revolution. And because you read, the, you read it again and again, although I wouldn't want to agree with everything she says, again and again, it's because of the research. The research has indicated all sorts of areas that we thought would bring joy and happiness have actually brought massive destruction, not only for the people involved, but particularly for their offspring, who are often the ones who've suffered. And now Bettina Arndt looks back on some of her research in the early days. In fact, she said, some of you have been at weddings, I've mentioned this. Um, she is alleged to have said, according to the, the Daily Telegraph, that when she looks back at the advice she was giving a decade earlier, she is alleged to have said in the Daily Telegraph, it is almost all wrong. 
She gave it with goodwill. She's not a nasty person. She wasn't trying to trick us. But she gave the advice that she thought was correct and now has to confess so much of it was well-intentioned but just mistaken. Is it possible, therefore, to have bad sex? I mean, really, truly, how is it possible to have bad sex? Well, it's certainly possible to write badly about sex. Uh, you can look this up on the net. There's these awards given every year in England for the worst bit of erotic writing that they've discovered. And, and one lady's won it twice. <laughs> I don't know if she aims for it, like getting two Oscars. Let me read you some of it. Some of it's still a bit unnecessarily um, grotty, but I thought I'd read you two of the bits. Uh, and just see if you think this is bad sex, at least in terms of writing. The winner from the year 2000. It's time, time. Now, yes, she is so small and compact, yet she has all the necessary features. And then, <laughs> alluding, alluding to the Son of Solomon, this next line, shall I compare thee to a Sonny Walkman? She is his own little Toshiba, his dinky little JVC, his sweet Awa, Awa, and on a go. think that's he didn't believe in the death penalty, that writer should be. <laughs> 1994, the Stonebreakers. Their jaws ground in feverish mutual mastication. Saliva and sweat, sweat and saliva. There was a purposeful shedding of clothing. Yes, yes. Bad writing anyhow about sex. Is there such a thing as bad sex? Well, I guess most of us would agree that there probably is. Most of us would think that the act of sex which is described as rape, is bad sex. Uh, even if one person has enjoyed it, it is, I think most of us say, that's very bad sex, even if it's done by an alleged friend or someone you're going out with. But when someone is forced against their will, I think, or even pressured, as happens to many women, they, they're not actually raped, but they really have made it, the guy has pressed and pressed, and in the end, it's kind of couldn't be bothered fighting. I think that's probably bad sex. Most of us in Australia at the moment would agree that pedophilia is bad sex. Although you need to be aware that there is a, a group of people who would argue quite logically and rationally within a non-God universe that there is nothing wrong with an adult freely entering into sex with a child. There are many other cultures which have, or not many, there are some other cultures which are admirable in terms of their architecture and military beats which actually believe that the highest form of love is between a man and a child. Sometimes with the same sex, sometimes not. Now many of us in our culture, in fact it's one of the few things we would all morally agree on is wrong, or at least most of us. And someone who tries to argue the case for pedophilia has a trouble getting on the radio and television. But they're there, the pedophilic liberation groups. Now they would say, and I'm quite clear on this, that there is nothing wrong in what they're doing. The only thing wrong in the situation is the culture that oppresses them and calls what is good and beautiful, evil and dark. They would accuse you and I of ageism. What gives you the right to say a six-year-old cannot freely enter into a loving, warm sexual relationship with a 40-year-old? On what basis? And frankly, if you're an atheist, you've got almost no rational basis. You've got a strong gut-level revulsion, but it's hard to get a rational argument against them. They would simply argue, friends, that they are now where our gay community was back in the early 60s, where they were oppressed and, generally speaking, spoken against. Not now. And I would say the problem is the culture. Most of us, though, would say, no, that's bad sex. Interestingly, look at Jesus, who was often used, I read an article in Saturday's Herald, using him to okay a form of sexuality that most Christians would say is clearly not right. But Jesus was brought into the Herald argument to say this was okay, uh, this particular form of sex. 
Queen look at Jesus, he clearly believes, for example, that if you are not married and you have someone sex with someone who isn't married, or you have sex with someone who's married to somebody else, but it's a love affair, he calls that one thing, adultery. So in John chapter 8, there's a very famous story in which we get the word that him who without stone, without sin, cast the first stone. Well, he rescues this woman caught in the act of adultery from these really judgmental jerks who drag her for public shame, but the bloke seems to get away scot-free, whereas adultery really does take two. Um, but he will, in the end, having protected her from the rage and the hostility of these sexist, judgmental jerks, he will then say to her, Neither do I condemn you, he gives her the word of grace and forgiveness, go and sin no more. He called what she was doing, that act of sex outside of marriage, sin. Jesus is clear that sex outside of marriage is bad sex. It is evil. If you have sex with someone you're not married to, according to Jesus, you are giving God the finger. You are saying to him, I know what you say, I don't care. I will not treat you with respect. I'll take your gift, but I'll treat you, the giver, and therefore the lawgiver, with utter contempt. That's bad sex, according to Jesus. Call it what you like. You'll read about these sort of relationships in those magazines that they put near the shopping shopping centre where you come out. Well, as matter, I think they're there so we can read them, aren't they? Don't think they expect us to buy that rubbish. Would anybody buy it? You, NW, I think. But you can read about all these adulterous relationships. They tell us science they're in love. They're buying a love nest. No, they're not. They're in lust. It's adultery, it's bad sex, according to Jesus. But then who gets to call these things? Uh, let me just touch on one question that I was asked uh, as a result of last week's session that came in on a, on a bit of paper. And that's the question about masturbation, for example. Is masturbation good or bad? Uh, well, who gets to decide? Clearly, if you're a wise man or a wise woman, God does. I'd like to read you some verses that the Bible has to say about masturbation so you can hear what your Creator says. You ready? Listen carefully. Well, that was interesting. <laughs> There's not a single verse on the topic in the Bible. And yet, if you want to ask about having sex with animals, I can find you the verse where the Bible says not to. Having sex with close relatives, apart from your husband or your wife, I can find you lots of verses that will say don't do that. Uh, having sex with someone of the same sex, there are many verses in the Old and, much more importantly for Christians, the New Testament, which tell us that that is not the way God designed us, and it's not the way he wants us to live. Now there's complicated issues, but in terms of masturbation, the Bible is silent. And therefore I think it's wise, as many uh, Christians that I've learned from and studied and listened to indicate that masturbation is not the sort of thing you want to make into the great be-all and the end-all of sex and sin and a measure of your spiritual life. It's just not that important. The Bible is not embarrassed. This is the important thing I want to notice. The Bible is not embarrassed to talk about masturbation. It will speak about nocturnal emissions or what we would tend to call wet dreams. It's a very unembarrassed book. In fact, we find it embarrassing. But it says nothing about this. I take it, therefore, it's wise. You'd be really hard-pressed, therefore, to say it is sin and evil. What is clearly a problem is mental fantasy, which normally goes with um, masturbation. It's clearly not good sex, because sex is supposed to draw you together with someone. So when you're sort of bringing yourself to some sort of sexual pleasure on your own, it's not really what it's designed for. I think most people sense that. This is supposed to be something done with the person that I'm married to, not on my own. 
But I think sometimes it can be blown into far too, far too big an issue. Issues of pornography that sometimes go with it, issues of mental fantasy, they are a problem. The Bible has stuff to say about what you do with your brain. Not just because it's impure, but because in the end it will affect your capacity to have sex with real people. Because fantasy is always better than reality. Always easier. It always works out better that way. You may want to take that up with me afterwards. Is there such a thing as bad sex? Let me just mention before we actually get to the passage, which I want to get too fast, I'm going to speak a little bit fast, okay? Um, this is such an important area, such a good area to look at, an important area. The other thing which we do with sex is we use it, to, we use it as a pain reliever. Uh, we do this all the time in our culture. So what happens after September 11th is massive, massive increase in the sale of expensive high-quality cigars across the Western world. Massive increase on the, on the amount of money spent on expensive perfume, like really high-class ones. Staying in really high-class motels. Buying single malt scotch. Buying French champagne. What's going on there? Well, it's, it's, it's a thing which I found a whole new universe, but is well known to many. That is, when we feel frightened, when we feel that our world has been shaken, when we're uncomfortable and sad and confused, a common thing is to buy luxury things, pleasurable things, which we can enjoy. Ah, you see, life is good. But I'm not just smoking an old port cigar, I'm smoking a 50 buck Cuban cigar, or whatever else. Uh, it's this sort of, we comfort ourselves by stuff that we buy, by pleasures. We do that sexually. We do it with narcotics. When, when people get addicted to narcotics, if they're using a, a gift from God to relieve physical pain in order to cover emotional pain. And our sexual urges and desires and the love, the love of romance, etc., can be used to cover deeper thirsts. So very often a person who is sexually broken who is relationally in trouble will have all sorts of addictions sexually and they'll have a, it'll be a raging passion it's hard to control it's often a thing which is covering a deeper problem and sex is used as an analgesic as a narcotic that I think is bad sex in as much as it's not being used to draw people together it's being used to deaden deeper pain well let us push on let's look at this story of Jesus and this lady, this very interesting lady. She's great fun. She's a real character. It's fun to have more time to look at her uh, in this whole relationship. But Jesus meets her. He's uh, sat on the side of a well. He is hungry and tired and thirsty. The disciples have gone off. Verse 7 of chapter 4. It's written on your outline here. As Jesus begins to deal with the question of thirst. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from himself as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands 
and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. So the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped this mountain, but you just claimed that this... She goes into an argument. Okay. Now Jesus raises the topic with her when she comes. He raises the question of thirst. He asks for a drink. As you'll know, human beings are born thirsty. You know that, don't you? Uh, we are born desperate for milk. We've never tasted it. We've never had a drink. We don't know what a nipple is, but babies are looking for it. You are born thirsty. It is one of your deepest, deepest longings for moisture. In fact, it's a much stronger urge than the urge for sex. Um, we hardly appreciate that many of us because we've never been seriously thirsty. But you are born a desperately needy critter with urges and longings and needs that must be met. And this is often the way that people speak of love. It's a thirst for love. It's a, it's a thirst for romance. It's one of our many thirsts and needs. And part of maturity is learning to live with these thirsts. So that every time you, don't, you, know, you get thirsty, you don't cry like you did when you were born. Every time your bowel is full, you don't just empty it where you're standing. You learn to control these urges as part of maturity. And Jesus raises with this woman the problem of there being two different thirsts and two different waters and two different satisfactions. He uses the question of thirst to speak about deeper longings and deeper needs. Humans, they obviously function at two levels. We have our physical, which you need food and you need water. If you don't get those things, eventually you will have breakdown, malfunction, death. But quite clearly humans function at a different level. We are not just animals. We are animals, but we're not just that. We have deep personal, or you could call them spiritual, or you could call them perhaps personal, emotional, slash spiritual needs, which are just as real and need satisfying. We, you have certain human emotional needs, but if they're not met, it will cause desperation, it will cause uh, fundamentally and finally breakdown and death. Malfunction. I've been greatly helped by a man called Dr. Larry Pratt, who some decades ago I first ran into, where he summarises and isolates those needs into two great areas. Um, he draws from the scriptures, he draws from experience, and I found these two things very helpful to understand myself, particularly when I'm functioning badly, and he says if these two needs are not met, you will behave oddly, or sometimes in understanding other people. Here's how he summarises these personal, spiritual, emotional needs. Firstly, you have a need for security. You have a need to know that you are loved. Not just to be loved. That, frankly, is not enough. You need to know that you are loved. You need to sense that love. One of the problems for parents is often communicating to their kid the love that they have. It is remarkably easy for children to not be convinced of love that the parents really have for them. And one of the challenges and skills of being a parent is to make sure your children have picked up that message that they are truly loved. Not conditionally, but unconditionally and permanently. We need to know that we are cared for. A sense of intimacy. Secondly, we need to know that we are significant. Security, significance. We need to know that we are worth something. We need to know that we are involved in something significant. That our life is not just a meaningless game filling up time between birth and death. You are actually worth something. You matter in the big picture. And this is one of the problems that a logical like this, and thankfully very few of them are logical, but logically with atheism, you don't matter. You are worth nothing. 
You have a creature of no substance in a, in a planet that really doesn't matter, in a universe that's going nowhere. And many atheists are just too frightened to look those questions honestly in the eye. We need to know that we matter, that we are worth loving. We need to know that we're significant and secure. Now the problem for humans is these are needs that God has placed within you, deep longings. They will seek fulfilment. They are like a thirst that has to be quenched. Now the thing that humans do is because we say to God, sometimes perhaps you're not even conscious when you start at the say, you're brought up in a culture that teaches you, do not refer your deepest needs to God. Work out for yourself, copy your culture, get these needs met. So what humans do with these God-given needs is we engage in foolish strategies to satisfy them. Sinful strategies often. Strategies that will damage us and damage other people. We will rip people off in the need to have these longings met. And they are a raging thirst in us. Crabs got this lovely picture, it's not very complimentary, that human beings are like fleas. Okay? These nasty things that dig their little fangs into animals and get all their nutrition out of the host animal. They give nothing back. Uh, very unpleasant except a bit of an itch, which is not entirely positive. But you're like a flea, you see. You need to get these longings met. Like a baby that's born, it's just a bundle of potential and longings. We're like fleas. And what we do is because we don't, as it were, latch onto the host, which is God himself, we in the end are like fleas that keep latching to each other. And we're sucking whatever nutrients we can. We're trying to get our needs met from each other. Fundamentally, we're unable to meet each other's needs. We can give it a shot. But in the end, these needs are so deep and so powerful and so real that if we don't go to God for them to be met, we will manipulate, try and control, try and cajole, try and get other people to meet my needs. Now, sometimes you can do that fairly successfully in the short term. You can be made to feel significant if by a series of accidents or divine gifts, depending on how you look at it, you have the talents, the body, the looks, the abilities that our culture admires. If you happen to have the fat in the right places and just the right quantities of it, you may get lots of love and affection from people in the short term because you're good looking and therefore lovable. You may have the ability to play critical games for the good of the universe like footy. You know, I look back and I felt pretty good as a teenager because I was good at football. I mean, big deal in the universe. Don't look at that for crying out loud. Don't analyse the fact that we adulate people who can catch that ball, you know, and run hard enough to hurt people and get through them and score tries. I mean, in the end, it's good fun, I like it. But frankly, it's hardly significant. But I'll tell you what, if you can do that, you will be made to feel like a person of substance, a person of significance. And until you get old, like me, when you can't do it anymore, and it's just a tragic past event, and you feel good. But in the end, it doesn't bear analysis, does it? Because if you look at it, what is it really saying that you can play footy? I mean, by all do it. You might as well be tiddlywinks or marbles. See, why is it if you're really good at tiddlywinks? You know, you won't, you won't be made to feel fantastic. It's purely arbitrary. In many ways, tiddlywinks is more skillful than football. But it's just, you know, it's an arbitrary thing, our arbitrary culture does. You can have the needs met, but in the end, uh, to have them deeply met and securely met, uh, we've got these raging thirsts to feel secure, to feel significant. We are designed to have them met in God. Let me read you just one of the many verses where God uses the picture of thirst in relationship to him. 
Jeremiah chapter 2. My people have committed two evils. Firstly, they have forsaken me, so they've walked away from me, the fountain of living waters. That's how God describes himself. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Two, they have dug out wells for themselves, cracked wells that cannot hold water. So he says, I am the one who has satisfied them. I am the fountain of living waters. But they've walked away from me. And in order to have their needs met, they've dug themselves dug into the well to leak. And if you've ever drunk of water out of a well, in contrast to water from a living stream, you know, it's just different, different experience altogether. But God's saying, they've walked away from me. He would have satisfied them. And therefore they begin to dig their own little wells that don't satisfy. And we get engaged accidentally often in idolatry. Victor Frankl, uh, who's an, an amazing character, not a Christian, he uh, worked out when he was in Auschwitz that your greatest need, a human's greatest need, is the need to know the meaning of their life, the purpose of it, that it's going somewhere. He said when people don't know that, what floods into that, what he calls an existential vacuum, is the will to pleasure or the will to power. They're substitutes, he says. Once we're neurotic and can't get an answer to the big question. The will for pleasure, he says, normally in the pursuit of sex. The will to power, he says, and analyzes in the pursuit of money. And friends, I love being in Australia, but that sounds pretty much like my culture. An obsession with money, an obsession with sex. They in the end become two great idols. And an idol is when you take something that God makes and you elevate it to the position of being absolutely central, where only God belongs. And you ask it to deliver to you what in the end only God can deliver. And we turn sex from a beautiful, fantastic gift from God into an idol. And we damage it and we damage others. But there are these real thirsts that Jesus raises here. He then gives this lady a bit of an education. She's educated straight off the bat because he talks to her. You saw it in verse 9. She can't believe that he's talked to her. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews would never drink from the same utensil as a Samaritan touch. And both in Samaritan and Jewish culture, no man would ever speak to a woman in public in many, many Jews, not even their own sisters or wives in public. There was a very strict rule there. And Jesus has in one step jumped over both of them. And she's a bit puzzled by this plague. This is a very dangerously radical man. She can't work out what's going on. But then Jesus says, listen, lady, you think that's surprising? Let me tell you something else. Verse 10. He really does say to her that she's a bit ignorant here. He says, if you knew the gift, presuming she doesn't, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that's asking you for a drink, you'd have asked him. He says, there's two important things you're ignorant about. Firstly, the gift of God. He says, you don't understand the gift that God has for you. And I guess you can say that to most Australians as well. No idea what God wants to give. A fundamental fear that what God wants to do is to take, to ruin, to suppress. But fundamentally what God has is gift. Yes, he will transform our lives. Yes, we'll give things up. But it's about gift that God has. He's lady, if you only knew the gift of God, and if you only knew who was talking to you, she has no idea who she's dealing with. She can work out this guy's dangerous, this guy's a radical, this guy's unusual, but she has no idea just how unusual. By the end of the chapter, the Samaritans get it because as you can see at the bottom of their work, he is the saviour of the world. He is the rescuer and redeemer of all people. But he says, lady, you're ignorant, you need, a, you need a genuine education. And then number four, which is really the heart of the passage, 
the real offer. Here's the offer that Jesus gives to her and to you. Verse 13. Jesus says, Whoever drinks this water, presumably pointing to the well, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus contrasts the water. He contrasts the thirsts and he says, you have these thirsts, you have these deep longings, he says. I can give you the water that will satisfy. In John 7, Jesus stands up in the temple and raises his voice. The word is, is a cry, a very loud cry and says, is anybody thirsty? Let him come to me and I will give the water of life. Jesus claims that he is the person who can satisfy your deepest longing, your deepest longings, your deepest needs, that if they're not addressed and faced up to it, will cause serious malfunction and cause us to do things that in the end we will deeply regret. He does it because he meets those two fundamental needs, your need for security and your need for significance. You need to know that you're lovable. You need to know that you're loved. Even if you're a big, strong bloke who doesn't go on too much about romance and doesn't read Mills and Burn, etc. Even if that's who you are, you still need love. And you still need to know that you're loved. And Jesus Christ is the one who will meet that deepest need. Because you are, according to Jesus, more profoundly loved at this very moment than you have the faintest clue of it. God has loved you with a steadfast, never-ending love. You didn't earn it, therefore you can't be disqualified from it. He doesn't love you because you're nice, he doesn't love you because you're beautiful, he doesn't love you because you're whatever. He loves you because he loves you because he is love. He has loved you more profoundly. You may have been a Christian for many years, you may already be excited by the love of God, this may just be words to you. But the simple reality is that he has loved you and he has shown that above all in his death for you. I have not the slightest doubt that as the Apostle Paul says, that the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to me, that if you were the only sinner in the world and all the rest of us have not a need of someone to die for us, Jesus Christ would have died for you happily. Yes, he dies for all of us, but as the Apostle says, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a love in Jesus which makes all the love that my parents had, and I was blessed to have two very loving parents. I've got loving friends, I've been lucky with friends. I've got a loving and patient wife. I've got three daughters who, as far as I can tell, still love me, in spite of the fact I'm a jerk. I'm, I'm a wash. I'm a wash in human love. That's a great thing. It's a good thing. But frankly, all of them are pretty old, shabby old things compared to the love that you discover in Jesus Christ. An eternal and infinite a pure love. He does not need me. He doesn't want to use me. He's not a flea needing my love. He comes and gives himself. It is a deep love. And when I first became a Christian, I didn't get that. I didn't become a Christian because I needed anything from God. I became a Christian purely because I was convinced it was true. And later on, I discovered, gosh, there's all sorts of nice things in there as well. But I used to hear Christians talk about the love of God and going on about it in prayer meetings. And I used to sit, I'd sit in these prayer meetings every Sunday, thank you, Jesus, for loving me so much. We really thank you, we really love you. And I used to think, you stop crap on. I used to think, I used to think they were lying. You liar. 
that, 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 we love you back. I know you do not. <laughs> he's too big to argue with. He's true. You respect him. You honour him. But let's not go with this bull about him being beautiful. But he is. Just because I was a blind man. But the last thing is, even when I'm sitting there, as people are talking to me, I'm thinking, oh, this is just get on with it, isn't it? The other thing is, Jesus is loving me. And he's in a place of opening up my proud, stupid, blind eyes. There's a love in Jesus which is so fierce and so passionate and so patient that he will slowly teach you if you come to him in order to learn. But not only do you discover a love which is just so beautiful and so beyond the capacity to explain, you see it in the death of Jesus and then you hang around the cross until you really get that. Then you begin to sense it and feel it. But also your, your need to feel significant is really dealt with because you really are very significant. You matter to God. You matter to the one person who matters. What does it matter if all six billion of us get together and say, you are the most perfect human being that's ever lived. You're the most important. Because what are they worth, frankly? In the, big, in the big scheme, we're all worth practically nothing. So what does it matter if a whole lot of noughts get together and say, you're the biggest nought of all? In the end, I mean, it would feel good. You'd feel good if I was think about it. But the fact that the one person who's really significant in the universe looks at you and says, you're really significant to me. You matter to me. I care about you. I love you. That matters. And the beautiful thing is that this woman discovers that she did probably the most wonderfully useful thing she's ever done in her whole life that afternoon. When having discovered a little bit about Jesus, God uses her to bring her whole village to Christ. She's using those first few minutes of getting to know God to do something that has impact for eternity. And somewhere or another, the lovely thing with God is not only does He want to rescue you and love you and bring you to know Him, but He will then put you into various areas where you'll be involved in significant work for Him, working with Him in this needy and broken world. You do matter to God. You know, people have this expression, I first ran into it when I was on the North Shore, it's to die for, you know that expression? To die for. I think it means it's really important to get it. Like that cheese is to die for. Uh, those board shorts are to die for. Well, I think there's a very real sense in which God looks at you and says, that person is to die for. It's a great thing. And the other thing is, it's not nice sort of self-esteem talk from some school counsellor. You need to you know, believe that you're the greatest artist in the world, although you know you're crap. Right? You know, your artwork is brilliant, your piano playing is better than Ludwig's. You know it's rubbish. You know, you've got to keep trying to believe all this nonsense. It's not true. What you've got to do is get to believe the stuff that is rock solid true about you and about him. So he's saying, I can meet your deepest needs. I love you. Always have, always will. Victor Hugo, who writes long novels, far too long, I think. But I think he got this. In his novels, he gets this, he gets this picture of God's love and grace. But this wonderful quote I fell onto a few months ago. He says, The supreme happiness of life, it's a big claim, the supreme happiness of life is the conviction of being loved for yourself. A lot of wisdom in that. The supreme happiness of life is the conviction, a deep certainty, of being loved for yourself. And that's why we're obsessed with romance, because not knowing the love of God, we'll hope to find it out there. The supreme happiness of life is the conviction of being loved for yourself. Then this is the brilliance of man, this is, or more correctly, being loved in spite of yourself. Okay. More correctly, being loved in spite of yourself. This is, this is the wonder of grace, that God loves us. Not really because of how lovable we are, 
but often in spite of us. That, friends, is why Christianity sins. It's just, it's too good to be true, but it is true. This is what he's saying. I will satisfy you. I will give you the water to meet your deepest needs. She finally half gets it and she says, give it to me. Let me have it. Verse 15, sir, give me this water. Now she doesn't quite get it, but she, at least she's now saying, instead of smart aleck, you think, come on, you want to drink, I'm, I'm the person with the water. Right? She finally realizes he's got something. She asks him. He then seems to change the subject, but I'll just you, he's not changing the subject one scratch. Because then he says to her, verse 16, go and get your husband. This is point five. The fake and the real, the stream and the puddle. Go and get your husband. Now he never does this to anybody in the gospel apart from this one lady. Never does he say to all the women that he talks with. And it's a great study to look at the way Jesus deals with women because it is one of the extraordinary revolutionary things in the way that he treats women. But look at the way he never does this. But he says to this woman, go and get your husband. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. She says, I can see you're a prophet. He's never been there before. They've never met. And yet they just chatter away. He reveals he knows her secret sexual history. That's a bit alarming, isn't it? Right? If I said to one of you, stand up. Oh, just speak about your secret sexual history. You know, we all be anxious. But, but Jesus, that's what he says here. Very kindly. doesn't say, you lying wench. You Samaritan, you're all filthy mouth lies. doesn't say that, but she's playing games. She's covering the truth. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands. So five times she stood up made the wedding promises, hoping this would be the one that would meet her deepest needs till death, and five times it's broken down. But she keeps trying, she keeps going into another relation, hoping this will be the one, this will be the one, this will be the one, and five times it finishes in divorce. And the present bloke, either she's given up on marriage or he won't marry her, but they're together anyhow. And what Jesus, he's still talking about thirsty, because what he's saying is, lady, that's where you've been drinking. That's where you've been trying to have your thirst met. He's not changing the subject. Now it just happens that some of that's sinful to get the last relationship where she's just given up on marriage. But that's not the issue. What Jesus wants to that's, that's the puddle you've been drinking from. You need to walk away from that and come to the fountain of water that will bubble and bubble into eternal life. Because eternal life, you see, Jesus says, is about knowing him and knowing his Father. It's in that relationship that your deepest needs are met. Not all of them. Right? You still need to eat. You still need to drink. You still need friends, etc. But the deepest needs of the human psyche are met in a relationship with Jesus Christ. As I mentioned here, I didn't become a Christian because of this stuff. That was all just a bonus for me. The question for me was true. But it's a fair enough reason to become Christian. If you recognise your thirst, you see perhaps the emptiness of romance. You've seen in the end that the thing that our culture says is where hope and certainty and joy and healing is found is ultimately an idol that will disappoint. It's perfectly sensible to come back to your maker, the fountain of living waters, and say, it's you that I need to know. It's you that I need to know more deeply and better and to walk with. And you are left finally with a very clear option. You can continue to pilot yourself through life pretending to be the rugged individual but remarkably similar to the culture you live in and uh, turn off the lighthouses and don't refer to the charts and just see how you go 
You can continue to self-medicate, which is what people do often with the use of drugs. You see people who are heavily into drugs, they're often just self-medicating. They're dealing with pain. The only way they know how. You can continue to self-medicate. You can continue to do what this woman tried to do with Jesus and play games, where she goes into this massive evasive tactic, trying to ask silly questions of Jesus, uh, avoiding the heart issues and trying to use the head as an escape, uh, asking all these funny little theological questions which Jesus, in the end, is not put off by. You can play games with all this. You can ask a million questions. Right? Or you can choose to place your trust where it logically belongs. Right? Let the needle point to north where it wants to go. Follow him. Get caught up with Jesus Christ. Don't just be another mass-produced, tragic, thirsty person. But instead, place your trust into him. Don't fight him, but follow him. Because he said, I've come that you may have life. Life in its fullness. If you follow him, it will cause radical changes. He will coach you. He will train you. At times it will not be easy, but it will be deeply satisfying. And you will have as good a sex life as it's possible to have. Not just in one night or one week, but for however long God gives you to live. Whether you be married or single, your whole being a woman or being a man will be lived at the maximum level. Because this particular God, who is real, loves you. And that's why he speaks. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you chose with your Father to create us as sexual beings. We're sorry that this area of our life has become so messed up at the moment. But thank you that you are the light in the dark world. Thank you for the way that you pursued this woman to give to her the water of life. And thank you for the way that you've pursued us. And we do again affirm our trust in you that we will walk your way that we will at times be different from our culture because we know that in you and in you alone our deepest needs are met. And we pray this now in your name.